this glorious mess. Hello, hello, and welcome to this glorious mess. It's the show that isn't surprised if you have a stool sample in your fridge. Because, you know, who doesn't? I'm Holly Wainwright. I'm a mum of two kids, Matilda, who's six, and Billy, who's four, and I work at Mamma Mia. And I'm Andrew Datto with three kids and no <laughs> stool samples in our fridge. And I don't ever remember having a stool because oh. someone had eat it. Someone... <laughs> They're in those little tubs with the yellow top in a plastic bag. They're always in the fridge. They come home from school and go, what's to eat? If you didn't say anything, someone would go, oh, chocolate. <laughs> oh, 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 Nutella's got a, Nutella's oh, got a new stop. packet. <laughs> Coming up today, we are talking to a mother who's on a mission to take the fear out of the scariest thing you're ever likely to do, give birth. Plus, if you're raising your kids in a small place, be warned. But first, can a tiny baby really tell you when they need the toilet? Andrew, I know it's a really long time ago now, but do you remember how old your kids were when they finally learnt to go to the toilet by themselves? I remember the day. How old were they? Uh, Fields was just over, just past two. Mm-hmm. Just over two, I think. Do you reckon he could have done it if he was five months old? <laughs> no. <laughs> lazy, <laughs> no, I just, I just lazy, lazy, lazy parents. Apparently, if you study your baby's face from the moment they're born, you can tell when they want to go and you can hold them over the potty so that by five months of age they will no longer need nappies. Did you know that? Yes. Yes. I I can imagine someone's done that. I can. (laughs) I also know that there's some Swedish doctor has, you know, left babies to when they're born to find the nipple by themselves over the course of the next 24 hours. Why would you? (laughs) Well, I think the idea is to get them, like, independent and, you know, empowered and also to save the world. They're 33 days old. (laughs) They're 33 days old. It's funny. So Rebecca English, she's a Queensland University of Technology researcher and a mum of three, says that parents are increasingly using this method. She says, and this is an understatement, it does take time and persistence, she says, but research shows that children who are introduced to this method from just 33 days were trained about five months. The thing is about this that baffles me, and my finger's up again. I know, I know. Is that... I'm just writing down what I think you're going to say. You would have to spend 24 hours a day with your baby looking at their face. You know when a, when a kid's going, yeah. right? They've got that, oh, here we go. So the look of a 55-year-old man who's a little bit pissed when he's come home from the pub. But here's my more pressing question. Say so you're five-month-old, right, who can't crawl, can't walk. How are they getting themselves to the potty? Can't boots good. How are they getting to the potty? Oh, no. So he's still picking them up. I mean, like, like, great, great. This is one. Is this one of those, you know, ultimate shaming things for mums who don't do it to go? Well, you know, Billy was trained at five yeah, months. That's exactly what it is. That's what it is. Because apparently, With eyebrows up. Yes, yes, he was. He was. <laughs> thing. The thing is, we didn't. He still did in his pants, but he he had the choice. <laughs> The other thing is is that these parents must have to be looking after their own children all the time because imagine babysitting a baby and then or a one year old or even like and the parents saying to you, When he wants to go, he'll pull his face, his eyebrow will go up, he'll pull, like his mouth will go like that, and you better take him to the toilet or you like that would just be so stressful. So it's only for parents who are like maybe like never leaving their baby's side. And is the nappy not a form of insurance policy to go just to give you a little bit of a break. Yeah. So good on you if you're doing that, but like seriously. Why would what you? Are you why, what, why are you doing that? If you know why people are doing that, let us know, please. Dad, you're not cool. 
Okay, Andrew, when it comes to this next story, I am screwed. San Diego parents Mike and Kelly Bruning received an anonymous note in their mailbox that read, It's important that you know that you guys are about the most selfish parents around because you like the beach. Your boys are trapped in a tiny one-bedroom upstairs apartment. Kids need yards to play in, a swing set, or a track to ride when they want to, not just when it's convenient for you. I don't know this, but I doubt that either of you had to grow up under these conditions. And then it says, shame on you in angry capital letters. Ouch. So... Basically, this couple and their children live in a small flat near the beach in San Diego. And they obviously haven't wanted to move away from the beach, so they've kept their family cooped up in tiny flat. And the neighbour has taken offence and written this note. Before I make my confession, Andrew, what do you think about this? Uh, well, it's anonymous, isn't it? It's anonymous. So that's that's the thing. You just screw it up and go. You know what you do? You take your dirty nappies and you'd leave them. <laughs> <laughs> and say, sorry, we didn't have room in our flat to put our poopy crap and Do you I'd think s- they've got a point about families living in small spaces? Well, if they take them to the beach, which is apparently right there, then that's a large space. Yeah. It's a lifestyle question. Exactly. I mean, it's ridiculous. That's like, this is buying into the whole thing that every kid deserves their own room. Maybe they do. Um, if you're lucky, you <laughs> their know. Their own clothes, their own their shoes. Their own clothes. <laughs> what, you don't got to share with your sister? What's wrong with you, Michael? Um, <laughs> exactly. My God. But, so, I, full confession, my family of four lives in a unit. It's not a tiny unit, but a unit very close to the beach and one of our main things that we talk about all the time is that when we want more room we'll have to move away from the beach right and we just don't want to do it so we're like constantly trying to come up with ways that we can keep the children (laughs) tiny so that they can stay living in our beachside flat for as long as humanly possible yes you're you're not is the Japanese that used to bind the children's Yes, feet. because this is why maybe this is why Billy doesn't eat. Maybe he's subliminally like fighting for our cause. But the thing is, is so we don't have a garden. Well, we have a shared backspace that kids play in with other kids. But we live very close to the beach into some parks, so we go out with the kids all the time, right? On the weekends, that's where we are. It's like that is like our back garden, you know. But it's as this person says, they can't just go out there whenever they want right. to. They have to go okay. when it's convenient for us. So I feel defensive about this, but am I wrong about that? Yes, you are incredibly wrong about it. And oh. there, and I'm not sure if there's research to prove it, but uh, there is some research to prove it, actually. I know that I just don't know what the research is. And it says that families who have these enormous houses, like enormous houses, are less happy than families in smaller houses where the community space is smaller and they're forced to interact together and be a family unit. Mm. So what you're creating is a family unit and a place for a family unit where it will generally be functional and there will be a relationship that will last forever. If you have... Because we did a show on it called... uh, I can't remember what it was called. Australia's Tiniest Houses. Australia's Tiniest. It was about... um, about needs versus wants and it was about all these these families having wanting to have the big big things and the big mchouses mcmansions things like that but they were generally more unhappy than the people with less because um because they were so disparate in their interests right and what, what we did on the show was we roped them off into an area that was a living room a kitchen and a bathroom without TV or anything else, put them into that space. It's called All I Need, um, the show. Put them into that space and for two days and they were deliriously happy. Ah. They played games, they read books, they talked, things like that. Put them back into the huge house. This is one of those massive houses in Western Sydney. 
not necessarily any happier. Oh, you validated me. Validate. <laughs> we can all stay living yeah. there forever. You validate me. It's the same as oh. whatever the movie was. You complete me. Well, I, I stamp, <laughs> I validate. So it's ridiculous. Cool. And when they have children, bully for them. Mm. Absolutely. Ah. Ha! Well, that tells you. That tells you people. Any pregnant woman will tell you it's the horror stories that are the worst. There you are, planning your water birth and packing your scented candles. And here's some idiot like me saying things like, you might as well rip that birth plan up. You know, with the, the horror stories, you know, that's for men as well. So, so women tell men and men tell men. I think that a lot of people are getting jack of this. And yeah. one of these people is Millie Hill. She's a writer, a columnist. She's the founder of the now global positive birth movement. Millie wants everyone to take the fear out of labour and for women to regain control over the most momentous moment of their lives. Hello, Millie. Hello. Millie, tell me about your family and your births. Okay, well, I've got three children. They're eight, six and three years old. Um, my first... Um, daughter was born in hospital um, and it was great birth but I was induced and I think probably um, looking back on it um, I probably didn't need to be induced I was induced because I was overdue. How overdue were you? Well I, I had her at 42 weeks and three days so I actually went quite a lot longer than most people do when they are um, induced for being overdue um, but still I felt under so much pressure during that time to be induced that it really kind of like made that last bit of the pregnancy really stressful and difficult for me. And I feel like I probably never would have gone into labor because I was just freaking out so much about, I've got to have this baby before this certain deadline. A normal pregnancy, um, you know, can be as long as 42 weeks, and yet some women are being induced at 41. Um, when I was about to be induced, I went in and said, I'm ready to be induced. And they said, well, actually, we can't... Um, induce you today because we're too busy this happens to people so it's like well is this a medical emergency or not you know mm. I think the, the problem is there are some gray areas um, and those gray areas are you're absolutely right really hard for women to navigate but I think sometimes you know with something like induction it's okay to say well what would happen if I waited another couple of days you know how dangerous is this but also you need to follow your heart um, but I don't think, I just felt like I wasn't going to spontaneously combust, you know, yes. at this particular deadline. I felt healthy. I knew my baby was healthy. I went in to be monitored. I worked with the medical professionals to make sure that there were no problems with me, my blood pressure, my baby, my baby's heart rate, movements, everything was fine. So I just felt comfortable waiting a little bit longer. Was this the experience that um, made you want to form the positive birth movement? I think it was part of what fed into it. Um, I think, you know, I personally, like you, um, felt a huge amount of fear in my first pregnancy about birth. And I felt like I'd never really heard any positive messages about birth. And I think that's true of a lot of women um, in our culture today. You know, there's a lot of negativity, a lot of stories of, you know, horror stories and, you know, it, it's it's quite terrifying. I was absolutely terrified when I was pregnant for the first time. So. Uh, I think it was partly to do with um, that fear of birth and not having any positive messages about birth. And it was also to do with this attitude that I, I noticed. And I suppose it kind of raised my feminist hackles a bit when people said to me, oh, you went, you had your baby at 42 weeks and two days? I thought, I didn't think you were allowed to do that. Um, and I would sort of say, well, you are actually allowed to do whatever you want because it's your body and you can make any decision you like about what happens to your own body. Um, and yet that, I heard that so many people, oh, well, I wanted to do this in my birth, but I wasn't allowed and they didn't let me. And I think there's a real problem with the dynamic of power in labor and birth, which means that women are kind of like 
um, the permission seekers, if you like, in the labor room, when in fact they ought to be the permission givers. I'm not saying that women should be saying no to all these interventions that they're being offered. Quite possibly, you know, many of them are very helpful. Um, but it's that it's the it's the dynamic that needs to change so that women feel they're in the driving seat, they're in control of, the, of what's happening to them and to their body. Do you they're think not if, just passive. Do you think that if women do feel in control, then the experience will be more positive for them? Absolutely, 100%. I mean, that's not just my personal opinion. I think that's borne out by all kinds of different research into women's experiences of labor and birth and, and also how they feel after the experience itself. Most women who are traumatized by birth will talk about the loss of control and the, the way that they were treated, not the actual events that happened to them. Some people are traumatized and experience terrible birth trauma after what from the outside might look to be quite kind of textbook, straightforward vaginal delivery. Um, it's not always um, what you would think of as a traumatic birth that makes people feel terrible afterwards. What, um, what do you say about Because a lot of people would push back and say, we put too much focus on the birth. It's not the birth that matters. All that matters is that the baby is healthy. What do you say to that? Well, <laughs> I have a really big issue with that statement, all mm. that matters is a healthy baby. Because I think, I mean, obviously, it goes without saying that a healthy baby is the absolute main thing that we all want from birth and and you know there's there's no arguing with that but i think it should be the baseline of our expectations not the pinnacle of our expectations um, and i think when we say to women that statement is often said to women after their birth when they're feeling upset or traumatized by what's happened to them and they're told listen enjoy your healthy baby you know that's all that matters what that's saying to them is that you know your experience and what happened to you and the way you're feeling right now about that experience isn't really important so let's not talk about it anymore you know tell me a little bit about the positive birth movement so is it just for people who want to have very what we would call natural births no it isn't it's completely inclusive it's completely about um, women's experience of birth no matter how they give birth or where they give birth one of the first things that we say is that one of the first things that make birth positive is that women are where they want to be so it's absolutely nothing to do with home birth um, or you know having lots of tea lights and whale music playing or anything like that mm, all, all the fact, stereotypes no, that I'm leaning towards there exactly. <laughs> yeah are you one of those people and I think that I've heard you talk about this a little bit before who says that um, labor doesn't hurt for everybody I'm really interested in that because I have to tell you it really hurt for me <laughs> yeah it's really interesting in fact this this conversation has come up in the media and um, certainly in the UK recently because they're having a big debate the um, uh, one of the royal societies of uh, anesthetists or something are discussing well really basically saying well if we can take away labor pain me medically then why don't we just do it for everybody why would anybody want to have pain mm. in labor what's the point of it so, yeah, it's a really interesting debate. Okay, so what I think is, yes, there are women who have different experiences of pain in birth. Some people say their labor was pain-free. They didn't have a, any pain in labor. I'm not one of those women. Is that possible? Um, is that possible? I think when you talk to the women that say that happened to them, what you find is that what they're actually doing is they're just using different language to describe what happened to them. Mm. They're talk, they talk about feelings of power, powerful feelings strong feelings, you know, waves. They have physical sensations, um, but they just frame them, uh, they mentally um, frame them differently for themselves. And I think another thing that's really interesting about labor pain is um, that the, the way that a woman is supported in labor and the environment that she is in 
does have a big impact on on her experience of pain. Now, as part, as the founder of the Positive Birth Movement, which I know now is in many countries around the world, people you must hear more birth stories than pretty much any other woman on the planet. <laughs> um, what's the most amazing one that you've ever heard? Well, I mean, obviously, there's absolutely masses of kind of really amazing, empowering sort of birth stories, usually home birth stories, water birth stories, where, you know, you see these amazing photos that get shared on social media and they often come my way. I don't know if you saw recently the thing that went around on social media of the baby being born really slowly. It kind of went really viral, this this form of a cesarean. Well, that was somebody who found that doctor through the positive birth movement, and that was really wonderful for me to hear. Mm. Um, Of the different birth experiences she's had, she had had up until that point, it was her third baby, and she really wanted a different, she knew she had to have a cesarean and that she wanted to have a cesarean for that third birth, but she knew she wanted to have a different kind of cesarean. So she looked around and found a doctor who was prepared to do this gentle cesarean with her. And it was a really amazing experience for her. And she, I've watched her talk about it in public um, at a conference. And, you know, she really had tears in her eyes and was full of emotion talking about how empowering it was for her to have that different kind of birth. You know, but there was also a really amazing story that I got sent one from once um, from a woman who, this is a really sad story, I hope you don't mind. No, that's but fine. She, she knew that her baby wasn't going to make it. She found out in her pregnancy that her baby had a condition that was not compatible with life. And she had been planning to have a home birth. Um, but then she went on, um, she she was then given the choices, you know, to, to for things to happen in hospital. Um, but she decided to have the baby at home and she did have this most beautiful home birth, even though the outcome with the baby wasn't and could never have been, no matter where she gave birth, the baby could not have been um, saved. Um, she had a very beautiful experience um, giving birth to him. So that story really touched me. But that really, again, reinforces the point that a healthy baby is not all that matters. One last question before I let you go. As the founder of the Positive Birth Movement, what is the one thing that you would love all women to know before they give birth? Well, I think the main thing is to tell them that they have choices and that they have rights. (laughs) Um, You know, I think there's a big sort of global movement towards that at the moment. And like I said earlier in our conversation, you know, you don't necessarily have to say no to everything or anything that happens to you in birth. But to know that you can, can kind of change the, the experience for you. Um, so, you know, I think it's just really helpful for women to know that they they are in the driving seat. This is their experience and that if they don't feel comfortable with anything or they don't, you know, want to do anything or they do want something that they're not being offered, then they have the right to speak up and ask for that just as they do in all other areas of their lives. I think women are pretty good these days at knowing mm-hmm. their rights in the boardroom and in the bedroom, but maybe not in the birthroom. That's so fantastic. That's a good message to spread, I think. All right. Thank you so much, Millie. And thank you for talking to me all the way from England today. I um, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Millie. Up next, Nailed and Failed. But if you're after a new podcast, get this into your ears. Hi, I'm Mel Buttle. I'm on a mission to find out all the things that can make our lives better. So I'm interviewing celebrities for a new podcast where I ask them one question. What are the things you can't live without? Like, what's the kitchen gadget Donna Hay swears by? How does Shayna Blaze spruce up a drab bedroom? And what's Matt Moran's go-to dish to impress any dinner guest? It's the go-to podcast for anyone who wants the expert's guide to the best things in life. 
can't live without. Subscribe in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. failed Andrew this week what went on in your house not much <laughs> failed you know, you know yeah and I it was have you been away a lot have you been away a lot I have been, been, been busy and uh, there was everyone went to school and you know Jack went to work and they came home anyway I'd got home earlier and went to sleep on the couch you know did you ever do that I wish yeah right <laughs> and when I woke up, everyone was home. Like everyone, and normal life was just standing around. No, you. No, no, and no one even said anything, which I think is a bad sign. <laughs> I think that's a fail because it's just it's an assumption that it's normal to go. Oh, dad's asleep. Like no one tried to be quiet. No one woke me up. They just left. They you just there. left me there, like a dead, <laughs> dead bald guy. <laughs> <laughs> There's a dead bald guy on our couch. I woke up and went. I was embarrassed to, to be caught. You know? and well, yeah, like on the some, couch. yeah. So sometimes I'll sleep in the car, like no, Did no. You? Like if I'm going somewhere and I've got a job. So if, so if I've got a job at the night time and, and it's, you know, it's I got to be there at six o'clock. Well, I might sort of get there at five and just have a quick snooze in the car before just to get myself. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. So you don't wake? I feel I feel awful when I wake up from a nap. Yeah, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes. But this was a long one. So it was it could have been sunburned. <laughs> Wow. So basically what you're saying is your house just operates around you. Totally. You're not needed. That's Well, not fine. only that, but they don't even go, hey, Dad's asleep again. <laughs> Do you think Dad's depressed? <laughs> is that a bottle of... No. <laughs> How did you get on? <laughs> okay, so Matilda asked me the other day, Mummy, what does sexy mean? God. And, and you, went, you stood there and you went, well... <laughs> And you put your arms out like this, and you went, na 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 Funnily enough, I did not do that. Oh, well, Funnily next enough, time, maybe Billy will ask you. So, she was singing a song that she'd heard at school. It goes, hey there, sexy girl, sexy girl. And I was, and she said, what does sexy mean? And I said... It's a very grown-up word. It's a very grown-up word. You, you don't want to be saying that. She said, because this little boy at school, he used it all the time. And I think I know what it means. It means mean. And I was like, no, it doesn't mean mean. <laughs> I said, it means when you really, really like someone in a grown-up way. And then I'm just like, what am I talking what about? What are you talking about? Well, do you tell me now what does sexy mean? That you want to have sex with somebody. Like if somebody's sexy, you want to have sex with them, right? That's what it means. Does it? But I can't say that to my six-year-old. Is that what sexy means? If you say that somebody is sexy, it means you want to have sex with them, right? No. Well, what does it mean? Yes, it does, apparently, according to Wikipedia or someone. And I thought it just meant that they're like a sexual, you look at them sexually, objectively. As an objective, whatever you know what I mean, like, you, like you're objectifying sexual, them. Yeah, yeah. Well, no. Yeah. What does the definition of sexy mean? Sexually uh, attractive means, well, 
No, sexy is sexually attractive. Yeah. But yeah, that's what I would say. Doesn't mean you want to have sex with them. Means they're sexually attractive. But it means you want to have sex with them. It might might not mean you're gonna have sex with them. But it means you, if you say, "Oh, he's really sexy, sexy," it means that when you see them, they give you sexy feelings, right? That's what it means. <laughs> Thank God. So I'm trying to explain this you to my six-year-old. You do have a six-year-old, don't you? you get sexy feelings <laughs> in your tummy. And then I was trying to. And other places. I was trying to explain your this to God. <laughs> this is what I'm. This is the problem, right? Is that parents can't talk about sex to their children without getting all embarrassed and funny, right? And I like to think, we've talked about this before on the show, I bought them that, that book that we once interviewed the author of this book about sex for kids. And so sometimes I just say to Matilda when she asks me questions like that, did I buy you that book? Can you just go look at the book? Have you said that to her? Yeah. Well, I bought you a book about this. Go look at that. Because when she points at a pregnant lady in the street and she goes, how did the baby get in there? I'm like, remember that book I got you? Look at that. But anyway... <laughs> So she was trying to say, and she was saying, this boy at school, he keeps saying, she's sexy, she's sexy, and it means he doesn't like them. And I'm like, oh. So, I mean, the children's politics. So I was telling myself enough. So do you say it means he does like them? I said, I think what it's supposed to mean is that he does like them, but he maybe doesn't understand what it means. But I said, but it's a very grown-up word, and you don't need to be saying it about people, you know. And she's just looking at me like, Mom, you're so stupid. (laughs) I wonder if you could ask the teacher. Yeah, I wonder if you could ask the teacher and say... What's the, what, what how do I, I define say? sexy? Oh. That's a fair question. Mm. Anyway, I think I failed. I think I failed at explaining sexy to my six-year-old. But also, universe, why do I have to explain sexy to my six-year-old? It's because she heard this song. Hey, sexy girl. Is that a rude word, she said. I'm like, it's not rude, but it's not really, oh, God, I just tie myself in these knots. It's not rude, but it's a little bit rude. It's a little bit grown up. It's a little bit objectified. Oh, God, look at me all just going. I know, I know, I know. What would have happened in the olden days? Oh, they would have said, shut up, Shut kid. up. <laughs> shut up. Get your mum a brandy. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> right? And a smoke. Exactly. And get a lighter and an ashtray. <laughs> exactly. And you just can't talk to them like that anymore, Andrew. Oh, it sucks. That's what's wrong with it the sucks. modern world. That's about it from this glorious mess today. This glorious mess was brought to you by Huggies Nappy Pants. Feels like a comforting hug, a bit like this glorious mess. Um, Look, you can subscribe to us, leave us a review, give us a rating, tell your friends about it, tell your fella about it if he's not part of it, because there's definitely things for men here as well. Um, Or you can call the um, the pod phone on 02-899-9386. Yes, leave us a message, you might end up on the show. To subscribe to this glorious mess in iTunes, go to apple.com co forward slash Mamma Mia, where you'll find all of our shows in one place and any books written by the many Mamma Mia guests. Today's show is produced by Eliza Ratliff for the Mamma Mia Women's Network. The executive producer of podcasts at Mamma Mia is Monique Bowley and the head of entertainment is me, Holly Wainwright. See you next time. Bye.